A historic ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court reverses decades of policy that allowed colleges and universities to consider race when they decide which students to admit. The court said a student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual and not on the basis of race. It's Thursday, June 29th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The ruling and the robust reactions coming up. Also today, the high court makes it easier for employees to seek religious accommodations at work. And later, something that almost never happens in Major League Baseball happened last night. A perfect game, 27 up, 27 down. Everybody goes back to the bench and nobody can get a hit or even reach first base. That's only happened 24 times. Coming up, the pitcher who pulled it off, and he's a dang Yankee. It's 401. News headlines are also ahead. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. Supreme Court's out with major decisions in cases rolling back affirmative action and advancing religious protections. Details coming up first, but an emotional conclusion today first in the trial of Scott Peterson, the former school resource officer who was accused of abandoning the students and faculty of a Parkland, Florida high school when it came under attack several years ago. Verdict, count one. We, the jury, find as follows as to the defendant in this case. The defendant is not guilty. So say we all this 29th day of June 2023 at Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, Florida. Verdict. Count two. And so it went for the we following 10 counts, of which Peterson was also found not guilty for his actions when a gunman went on a shooting rampage in 2018 at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. As the verdict was read, Peterson broke down in tears and hugged his attorney, while the parents of victims who were among the students and faculty killed or injured in the massacre shook their heads in apparent disbelief. In a decision being felt at colleges and universities nationwide, a divided Supreme Court has decided to gut affirmative action. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports President Biden strongly rejected today's ruling and is now directing the Department of Education to look into what practices can help build more diverse student bodies. In remarks from the White House, Biden called the court's decision a severe disappointment, but he says it can't be a permanent setback. I believe our colleges are stronger when they are racially diverse. Our nation is stronger. Biden says his message for the country's colleges is that schools should take into account the adversity students have to overcome in their admissions process. The Supreme Court's 6-3 decision, which upends decades of precedent in academic admissions, was split on partisan lines. Biden said of the court, quote, this is not a normal court. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. The decisions against Harvard and the University of North Carolina's admissions policies mark a long-awaited victory for Edward Bloom, the conservative legal strategist who've been fighting against race-based affirmative action. These obligations compel the removal of all racial and ethnic classification boxes from undergraduate and postgraduate application forms. The Deep South is in for another day of extreme heat. We have more on this from NPR's Debbie Elliott. The National Weather Service has issued excessive heat warnings for a large stretch of the South from Texas to the Florida Panhandle. The heat index is forecast to be up to 120 degrees in New Orleans and to 115 in Mobile, Alabama and Pensacola, Florida. The high temperatures have prompted cities to open libraries and community centers as cooling stations and are warning people with medical conditions to take special precautions to stay cool. That's Debbie Elliott reporting. This is NPR News. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. We've got more now on the Supreme Court decision today to strike down the use of affirmative action in college admissions. Harvard was one of the two schools whose policies were at the core of the case. President-elect Claudine Gay says the university will continue to strive to be inclusive. She addressed the Harvard community in a video message today. We will comply with the court's decision, but it does not change our values. We continue to believe deeply that a thriving, diverse intellectual community is essential to academic excellence and critical to shaping the next generation of leaders. Harvard sophomore Rebecca Zhang is of Chinese descent. She's part of a coalition of students, professors, and Harvard alum that opposes striking down affirmative action. I think that one of the scariest parts of this case is that minorities are being pitted against each other. And it's really frustrating for me to watch Asian Americans being used as a racial wedge. But Harvard graduate student Natalie Lay says as an Asian American, she supports today's ruling. Affirmative action is systematically racist because I believe that everyone should be judged by their uh, merit. And then, of course, I I believe there are other uh, features uh, such as socioeconomic background that should be greatly considered. Lay says her skin color should not be a deciding factor in a plan to diversify an academic environment or workplace. Today, Boston's Children's Hospital finalized its plan to acquire Franciscan Children's Hospital in Brighton. Boston Children says the merger will help expand mental health treatment for the growing number of children who need care. It'll also help expand rehabilitation facilities for children with complex medical conditions. Franciscan Children's opened in 1949 with a mission to help children with special needs. It'll keep its name when the deal closes Saturday. And a heads up, if you plan to drive along the westbound side of the Ted Williams Tunnel tonight, it'll be closed as of about 1 tomorrow morning from East Boston into South Boston and then reopen about 5 a.m. Drivers will be detoured through the Sumner Tunnel. 75 degrees in the Boston area now. It's been a pretty nice day today. Spotty showers around for the evening hours. Tonight should be partly cloudy, down around 65. Tomorrow, more sunshine than we've had for most of the week, up around 80 degrees. It's 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Five days and counting since the revolt in Russia. And Vladimir Putin is still standing. But for how long? The events of this past weekend mark the greatest challenge to Putin's rule since he came to power 23 years ago. And now a U.S. official has confirmed to NPR that a top Russian general with ties to Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin has been detained. It is not clear if General Sergei Surovikin supported the uprising, but the ties between the general and Prigozhin go back years. We also know that these two individuals see themselves as being in the thick of the war and the struggle, and they see the elites in Moscow, you know, to be more corrupt, to be not really fighting uh, for their motherlands. And so that creates a certain potential proximity of how they view things. That is Gulnaz Sharafudinova. She's director of the Russia Institute at King's College London. When I spoke with her today, I asked her take on how wounded Putin is. That's the very big question, right? I like to compare what happened to sort of like a glitch in the matrix. This might be for American audiences. Uh, 
there remember that black cat and the glitch in the matrix that reveals that there is a matrix right and we saw that the glitch in russia you know things that have been under the radar things that have not been shown to the population uh, in their own immediacy that is the real conflicts that exist among the elites all of a sudden uh, it was on display and no wonder now the Russian media managers would be doing a lot to try to diminish the importance of what has happened and there will be many people who might not even believe that this was a real mutiny a real challenge to the authority but many will believe that and we see in terms of the laughter that's emerging in terms of the ridiculing patterns and the anecdotes that emerge in the russian social media we see that people are reacting and you know the very common reaction was that oh the emperor is naked so from that perspective, the leader who has been very successful in managing conflicts and being an arbiter among different interest groups, all of a sudden didn't manage well this time. And that does demonstrate weakness on his part. And it cannot not hurt. No wonder that they are, will try to patch it up. What do we know of how ordinary Russians view all this? What do they make of what's happening? The very early reactions were focused on various types of conspiracies. Many people had hard time believing that Putin could be challenged in such an open way. So it was a reality that was hard to confront. So various types of conspiracy theories that this was conspired by Putin himself to somehow increase or improve his hold on power were very prominent and popular, and I think they will remain. But at the same time, the other side of the story is the, I mentioned, ridicule and laughter and the social media creativity that goes on with regards to uh, bringing out various types of uh, clips from films and movies that would make fun of the situation. So it's between laughter and disbelief. And there is, of course, a wide range between that. Hmm. So do we have any insight into what President Putin is thinking, what his next move may be? Uh, you know, people are expecting repressions. You know, some of the revengeful acts might take some time, uh, uh, but this is something that we will be looking out for. And it is hard to say what exactly, uh, you know, will be decided at the moment. I think there is some lag in terms of digestion uh, that will happen and soul searching within the government, within the security services and sort of looking around and then uh, taking some action. So we are all on the watch out for those. Yeah. Has he signaled in any way that this mutiny might cause him to rethink his war in Ukraine? No, that we haven't seen. What we have seen is the attempt to patch up this open sort of challenge that was revealed uh, and to patch it up with rhetoric of popular unification behind the president, uh, the army saving, you know, the government and the country. And uh, yet again, the message of the West, the evil West that's trying to fragment Russia that is out there looking for Russia's weaknesses. So all those messages uh, to a certain extent have been there and they are being used again. But at this time, you know, we see this as a band-aid that's being put on the events. One question to leave you with, and it's this. I saw one former U.S. diplomat, Elizabeth Shackelford, uh, quoted on recent events, and she said her central question now is, 
Is Putin's biggest battle not with the West, but with his own people now? What do you think? I would say that Putin's biggest battle is on the front lines in Ukraine and the outcomes of that battle and the perceived loss uh, or success on, in that battle will determine his relationships with both the people and the elites in Russia. Gulnaz Sharafudinova, professor of Russian politics at King's College in London and author of the book The Red Mirror, Putin's Leadership and Russia's Insecure Identity. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. And we are also tracking today's big news out of the Supreme Court. Rulings striking down race-conscious admissions at Harvard and at the University of North Carolina. Reaction from Harvard Law Professor Charles Freed elsewhere on the program. It's been 42 years since Raiders of the Lost Ark introduced audiences to a globe-trotting, bullwhip-snapping archaeologist played by Harrison Ford. In Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, his fifth and possibly final adventure, our hero keeps saying he's tired. But critic Bob Mondello says the actor who turns 81 next week still cracks a whip like nobody else. We begin in Germany, 1944. The Third Reich is in retreat. German soldiers piling looted plunder on a train. A hostage with a sack over his head gets dragged before a Nazi officer. The bag removed, it's Indy. Looking so persuasively 40-something, you may suspect you're watching an outtake from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Harrison Ford has been digitally de-aged the most effective use yet of a technology that could theoretically let blockbusters hang in there forever with their original performers. Happily, the filmmakers have a different sort of time travel in mind here. After establishing that Ford's days of daring do aren't yet daring done, they flash forward a bit to 1969. A creaky older Indiana Jones reconnecting with the daughter of a fellow archaeologist. I'm retiring. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something on a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Because it's an adventure, obviously. Credit Ford with letting us see what the ravages of time have done to Indy. He's tired, everything hurts, but when bad guys show up, he can still rise to the occasion. Who are you people? What do you want? Dr. Jones! Jones, we're not going to hurt you. Right, as if that were possible, more likely the other way around. Turns out that Helena, who's played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, is hoping to sell that dial gizmo at an auction in Tangier, and when Indy finally catches up with her, he discovers someone else is looking for it, too. You. Have we met? No. My memory's a little fuzzy, but your face rings a bell. Are you still a Nazi? That's Indy, always the diplomat. 150. After our conversation, Michelle, I thought we'd come to an agreement about the dial. Funny, the last time I saw the other guy who looks like you, he was also after this. This relic is my property. It's not yours. You stole it. Then you stole it. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. The bid is 160. 160. 170. You should have stayed in New York. 170. You should have stayed out of Poland. 170. Anyone? Anyone? Going! 
Going! Gone! As in out the door and across Tangier in a mad dash on three-wheeled tuk-tuks. Director James Mangold, who knows something about bidding farewell to aging heroes, he's the guy who helped Wolverine shuffle off to glory and Logan, finds ways to check off a lot of indie touchstones in the Dial of Destiny, booby-trapped caves that require problem-solving, water displacement, Get in the pool. airplane flights across maps, ancient relics with supernatural properties, no snakes but plenty of critters that resemble them, and of course, Nazis. Hitler made mistakes, and with this, I will correct them all. Mengold's action sequences may not have the lightness Spielberg gave in these previous adventures, but they're still madcap and decently exciting, and though in plot terms the climax is, let's say, ill-advised, the filmmaker clearly knows what he has a hero beloved for being human in an era when so many film heroes are superhuman. So Mangold does the thing indie fans and Harrison Ford fans want, and in Dial of Destiny's final moments, he dials up the emotion. I'm Bob Mandela. Beauty pageants may have a reputation for upholding outdated ideas on the standards of femininity and womanhood, but a new pageant is taking a more inclusive approach. You can hear from the very first winner of the Miss Trans Africa pageant. That's on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. You can listen on air, online, or try asking your smart speaker to play your local NPR member station by name. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 20 minutes, a court has ruled that the British government's plan to send migrants seeking asylum in Britain to Rwanda is unlawful. That story's still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in health communication, 100% online. Learn storytelling and media strategies vital to health marketing and communication. Learn more at bu.edu slash MEP. On Wall Street today, the Dow rose eight-tenths of a percent. S&P gained nearly a half percent, and the Nasdaq ended flat. The owner of the Encore Casino in Everett says it's looking forward to ratification of the agreement it reached with union workers. Win Resorts, as the deal provides compensation that's among the highest in the Massachusetts gaming industry. Union members will vote on the agreement tomorrow. They say it includes the benefits that they wanted. And pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly is set to buy Cambridge-based biotech company Sigalon Therapeutics. The deal announced today is said to be worth nearly $310 million dollars. Lilly already owns about 8% of Sigalon. The companies are working on cell therapies for type 1 diabetes. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. 
been lovely out there today. Could have some spotty showers around over the next couple of hours. Tonight, partly cloudy skies, about 65 degrees for a low. Then for tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, close to 80 degrees. As of now, the weekend is looking sunny to start, then clouds to finish. 57 degrees in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The Supreme Court has upended the way colleges and universities evaluate applicants. Quote, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. End quote. Those are the words of Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote for the conservative majority on the court. Well, at one time, Charles Freed might have agreed with this decision. Freed served as Solicitor General, and he has taught constitutional law at Harvard Law School for more than six decades. Harvard University, along with the University of North Carolina, were defendants in today's case. I want to note that I graduated from Harvard, and Professor Freed, I want to welcome you to All Things Considered. Nice to be here. Now, you have not always been a supporter of affirmative action policies, as I just nodded to there. In a few sentences, why? Well, it's the conflict between the vision spoken by Chief Justice Roberts in another case that the only way to get past discrimination is to stop discriminating and Justice Blackman in the Bakke case, that the only way to cast to get past race is to use race. And the question is whether, as a practical matter, as a realistic matter, we are entrenching a possibility of a... Uh, society which will forever be viewed as multiracial, and that is to say where race will count and will uh, put you in a box. So when and, and how did you change your mind? Oh, on the practicalities of it, because even when I was Solicitor General and arguing uh, for the vision which the Chief Justice gives, I would not agree with and did not agree with the extreme version of that, which was expressed by Justice Scalia, <clears throat> which meant that what, what you had to do, therefore, was only to remedy for the particular person any discrimination that that person suffered. 
uh, and uh, the government argued, and I argued before the Supreme Court, that if there has been a generalized pattern of discrimination, uh, then uh, you can't find any particular victims. Uh, so and- so as, as a scholar of many years of constitutional law whose own thinking has evolved on this issue, what is your reaction to today's decision? I am torn because I embrace the vision of the Chief Justice that ours should be a society where uh, race is not a significant factor in who you are, what your opportunities are, mm-hmm. uh, what what your world will look like, and what your place in that world will be. That's a beautiful picture, and I I think it's an American picture. But you said but you're torn. How so? I'm torn because... It is a picture that is far from a reality today. And that is the gist of Justice Sotomayor's dissent, that we are very far from that. And we have not necessarily got moved closer. So the question is, uh, can we ever get there? And being an optimist, I think we can. But being a realist, I know we're not there. Whatever one's politics, Professor Freed, whatever one's personal views on affirmative action, do you find the legal reasoning in today's decisions sound? I find the legal reasoning uh, in the Chief Justice's opinion to be... uh, flawed because it does not take into account the fact that this is still a racially divided country, although things have gotten better. And I find that Justice Sotomayor is flawed because she does not recognize what the court recognized many times, starting with Baki and very much in Fisher. Baki, just to just to uh, bring people Bakke into that, 1978 70, initiated precedent for supporting race-based that's affirmative right. action. Go uh, on. That's right. And that is that this should not be a policy which goes on forever. It's got to have an understandable... And a, and a realistic time when it is over. Now, Chief and Justice Roberts did, forgive me for jumping in, Chief Justice Roberts did, in his opinion, add, this decision should not prohibit universities from considering how race has affected an applicant's life, an applicant's experience. How big a window does that leave open? Uh, we will see. We will see that there was... You're asking me as a legal scholar, uh, there was a very clear uh, example of this in the Michigan uh, cases uh, of 1906, 
2006, the Grutter and Gratz. In Grutter, uh, the law school there, uh, which has only about a few hundred students in each class, uh, had an individualized policy uh-huh. in the undergraduate uh, school at Michigan, which has thousands in a class, uh, it was played by the rules with a firm 20% by uh, uh, addition for all right. uh, minority uh, applicants. Well, uh, that the Supreme Court struck the undergraduate program down as being a quota mm-hmm. and allowed the Michigan one in okay. because it was individualized. Professor now, Freed, thank you so much. We will leave it there. Charles Freed of Harvard University, thank you. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Some clear spots overnight tonight. Fair weather clouds around, falling again to about 65 degrees. For tomorrow, lots of sunshine, close to 80 degrees. It's looking like we should have sunshine on Saturday. As of now, anyway, clouds on Sunday. Red Sox have another chance to try to top the Miami Marlins tonight as they meet up for the third and final game of their series at Fenway. Brian Bayo pitches for Boston. Jesus Luzado for Miami. Game time is early tonight at 6.10. The Sox have lost six of their last seven games. Coming up in about 20 minutes, the New York Yankee pitcher with a big zero on his back threw a perfect game last night. Why, that is so rare Coming up on WBUR, 75 degrees under sunny skies and some clouds around in the Boston area. It's 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Maneuver through vibrant, mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Tickets at mos.org. Pulitzer Prize-winning musician Rhiannon Giddens. Should you sing a spiritual like you a 78-year-old black woman from Alabama? No. (laughs) Sing a spiritual like you are. Because, like, what are spirituals anyway? They're amalgamation of African and European musical elements. So it's like, why does anybody own that? Nobody owns that. Have respect. That's On Point, tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled against affirmative action policies at two universities. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz reports the decisions reverse decades of precedent and could complicate rather diversity issues in the application process moving forward. The Supreme Court of the United States said affirmative action policies at two universities violate the 14th Amendment. The judges said policies at Harvard and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill violated the Equal Protection Clause. This could end the ability of colleges and universities from considering race in a student's application. Race was considered as one of many factors in admissions decision. The decision also reversed decades of precedent upheld since 1978. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. 
The former sheriff's deputy in Florida, charged with child neglect and culpable negligence in the school shooting that left 17 people dead more than five years ago, has been acquitted of all charges. Scott Peterson was a school resource officer accused of failing to confront the gunman at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School when he stayed outside as the shooter fired his weapon. Smoke from Canadian wildfires is creating unhealthy air quality in the U.S. from the Midwest to the East Coast. Air quality in the nation's capital hit red today as a light smoky haze hung in the air. Karen Hudson is a physician with MedStar Health in Washington, D.C. We need to remember that as the air quality gets worse, we need to minimize our time outside. We need to consider wearing masks and other protective measures so that we minimize the amount of particulate matter we're breathing into our lungs. So far, the fires have burned some 20 million acres in Canada this year with some 500 active wildfires. The Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre says half of those are out of control. Wall Street ending the day in mixed territory. The Dow up 269 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. There are questions about the competency of defrocked Catholic Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. McCarrick is facing sexual assault charges. The Norfolk DA's office said today defense and prosecution experts have determined that the 92-year-old McCarrick might not be capable of going on trial. McCarrick was once considered the most powerful Roman Catholic leader in the United States. He's accused of sexually abusing a teenage boy at a wedding reception at Wellesley College in 1974. He's pleaded not guilty. The court will hold a hearing on the competency reports in August. Harvard University says it will comply with the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling that the school's affirmative action admissions policy is unconstitutional. It also says it will continue to attract people from different backgrounds. Harvard's incoming president, Claudine Gay, says transformative teaching and learning depends on a diverse community. Congresswoman and House Whip Catherine Clark tells WBOR's Radio Boston today that colleges and universities can attract a diverse student body despite the decision. I think there could be some good outreach and changing recruiting and working very hard to touch communities that don't necessarily look at college as part of the future. Governor Maura Healey, along with higher education leaders and some student advocates, call the decision disappointing. The local leaders say they're committed to welcoming students who have been historically underrepresented in higher ed. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation says it's taking steps to protect Chelsea residents from the lead paint chips that are flaking off the Tobin Bridge. Chelsea residents say the chips are contaminating their homes and yards. The state is planning to put up nets for protection until it's able to get the Tobin repainted. Chelsea wants the state to expedite the project that is not scheduled to start until later this year. The forecast is ahead. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. Some isolated showers around today, but mainly dry. Should stay dry overnight tonight. Partly cloudy skies, lows in the mid-60s. For tomorrow, more sunshine than we've had for most of the week, up close to 80 degrees again. This is 90.9 WBUR, 75 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. 
Plymouth gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Religion has been on a winning streak at the Supreme Court, and a decision today continued that trend. In a unanimous ruling, the justices made it easier for workers to seek religious accommodations on the job. The court said an employer must grant a worker's request unless doing so would impose a substantial cost to the business. Douglas Laycock is a leading scholar on religious liberty and an emeritus professor of law at the University of Virginia. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So this case involved a postal worker who did not want to work on Sundays in observance of his faith. What's your initial reaction to the decision? Well, I mean, this is this is a correction, um, and it's, it's not the court, really. It's Congress. Uh, the employment discrimination laws prohibit religious discrimination, and Congress defined that to include religious practices and not just beliefs. And the statute says... The employer must accommodate an employee's religious practice if if it can do so without undue hardship. Can I drill down on that undue hardship phrase with you? Because they said substantial increased costs in relation to the conduct of the particular business. Parse that for us. What does that mean? Well, you, you have to understand it in comparison or contrast to what they said 45 years ago, that an undue hardship was anything more than a de minimis expense. Hmm. De minimis is just Latin for minimal or trifling. Um, So employers essentially didn't have to do anything to accommodate religious practices. And and there were cases in the lower courts that said you don't even have to try to negotiate a shift trade uh, for your employee. Um, You can refuse an accommodation because coworkers get irritated or customers don't like to see a Muslim head covering. And so how widespread do you expect the impact of this to be? Well, I think it would be quite right, widespread for religious minorities. I mean, th- this, is, this is important to some very conservative Christians. It's important to Orthodox Jews. It's important to Muslims. Um, and you know, the, most of these cases are either scheduling cases or people observing the Sabbath or a religious holiday, or they are dress cases or People were in yarmulkes or her jobs or modest clothing. Um, and most of them don't involve much burden on the employer. Some of the scheduling cases do, but most of them don't, and the dress cases certainly don't. So requiring substantial cost or burden is a very substantial change for the employees who need this protection. What do you make of the fact that this was a unanimous ruling? I'm not surprised. I expect it to be unanimous because the the decision from the 70s was so clearly wrong as a matter of, of statutory interpretation and what the words actually meant. And you know, and the court the court emphasizes the text of statutes today much more than it used to. Hmm. Um, so uh, I I expected unanimity to try to fix this. I'm a little surprised they unanimously agreed on how to do it, but. Yeah. Um, But uh, it needed to be fixed, and they finally recognized that. Just step back for a moment. So many of the religious liberty cases that have come before the court in recent years are very contentious and closely divided. Questions involving access to birth control or a wedding cake in a same-sex marriage. And so how does this inform some of those religious liberty cases that sit more at the heart of the culture wars? Well, I mean, you mentioned the most divisive and the most publicized. There have been a number of unanimous religion decisions. 
Um, I think both the left and right wings of the court agree on the importance of the free exercise of religion. What they disagree about is what kinds of countervailing interests are so important that they override free exercise of religion. So for the liberals, contraception and women's rights and abortion and um, same-sex marriage are all more important than religious liberty. Uh, For some of the conservatives, it turned out capital punishment being officially implemented was more important than religious liberty. So they disagree about what kind of countervailing interests count, but but when you don't have a big countervailing interest in the picture, uh, they're fairly often unanimous about protecting the free exercise of religion. That's Douglas Laycock, Emeritus Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. Thank you for your analysis. You're welcome. Let's head overseas now. The British government's plan to send migrants seeking asylum in Britain to the East African nation of Rwanda is unlawful. That's according to judges with the Court of Appeal, who said they had concerns about the policy. From London, Willem Marx reports. Months in the making, the judgment delivered by Britain's Lord Chief Justice, Lord Burnett, was clear. There is a real risk that persons sent to Rwanda will be returned to their home countries where they faced persecution or other inhumane treatment when, in fact, they have a good claim for asylum. In that sense, Rwanda is not a safe third country. This ruling represents a blow to the British government of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak that's fought for more than a year to implement this policy. Announced in the spring of 2022, the plan had intended that migrants who reached Britain by boat from France would face almost immediate deportation to Rwanda. Their claims for asylum could be examined there, and if successful, they'd be invited to stay and settle in Rwanda. But the judges decided that, based on the evidence, the landlocked nation in East Africa, some 4,000 miles from Britain, had what they called deficiencies in its asylum system. The agreement between the UK government and Rwanda and the assurances provided as part of this did not mitigate uh, sufficiently against a real breach of uh, fundamental human rights, namely the right to be free from inhuman and degrading treatment. Lawyer Sophie Lucas at law firm Duncan Lewis represents seven individuals involved in the case who have been threatened with removal to Rwanda. They will be incredibly relieved, um, cautiously optimistic perhaps, that they can rebuild their lives here in the UK. They've been through unimaginable trauma. But Rishi Sunak and his fellow Conservatives in government have said they disagree with today's ruling and will seek to overturn it in Britain's Supreme Court, perhaps later this year. Interior Minister Suella Braverman said the government's promise to stop the boat crossings required fresh thinking, along with the new legislation it's currently championing in Parliament. We've got an unsustainable problem that we need to fix. And whilst, of course, we are disappointed with the decision today, we will be uh, putting in an application to seek permission to appeal um, uh, the judgment very, very swiftly. Earlier this week, her own ministry released a report that calculated the financial costs associated with the various options for new migrant arrivals. It estimated it would cost roughly $85,000 more per person for asylum claims to be processed in Rwanda rather than the United Kingdom. A Rwandan government spokesperson said they took issue with the ruling that their country was not safe for asylum seekers and refugees, calling it, quote, one of the safest countries in the world that has been recognized for its, quote, exemplary treatment of refugees. As the legal tussle continues, it means many more months of uncertainty for those caught in the middle, according to organizations working with them like Freedom From Torture, where Sheila Reynolds is head of advocacy. It's incredibly difficult for us to provide clinical services to people in those kind of circumstances or for them to make any kind of progress in their rehabilitative journey when they have that 
that that threat hanging over their heads at all times. In court, the judges had made clear they were passing no judgment on the policy's political merits. But this particular policy remains deeply polarising for Britain's politicians, but also society as a whole. For NPR News, I'm Bill and Marks in London. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's easy to spot greatness in sports, but what about perfection? In baseball, for a pitcher, it's 27 up to bat and 27 right back down. And it happened last night for only the 24th time in Major League Baseball history. Right-hander Domingo Herman threw a perfect game for the New York Yankees, that team's fourth. Brian Hoke joins us now to discuss. He covers the Yankees for MLB.com. Hey there. Hey, how are you? Great to be on with you. Yeah, you're still sounding good spirits from from last night. So tell me what it was like. At what point are you and the other baseball writers looking around at each other and thinking, huh, could this be a perfect game? Oh, boy. You know, I, I think that watching that game, probably around the fifth inning, which is where Domingo Herman said he started to think about it, because then you're at the halfway point and you're kind of doing the math on everything that is going on there and you're thinking ahead you're saying all right he's got to get 12 more outs here to get to the finish line of this and we've certainly seen plenty of close calls over the years but every time uh those alarm bells start going off and whether it's a no hitter or a perfect game you start thinking i might be seeing something special here tonight so you definitely inch to the uh, the edge of your seat a little bit with every out and then you're just starting that game where you're counting down you're saying all right now it's 10 now it's uh, nine. Now it's eight. And he did have some lengthy delays to deal with. The Yankees decided to put up one of their biggest innings in weeks and score a bunch of runs. So he had to kind of wait there on the bench. And I, I think that as that wait is going for 20, 25 minutes there and you're waiting for your team to stop hitting, yeah. you're wondering when is he going to get a chance to go back out to the mound? Could this affect him? And just on a night like that, everything came together. And as you mentioned, it's so rare to see. The last one was in 2012 and got to see something really special last night in Major League Baseball. This is also the first perfect game with the new rules, with the new pitch clock. Explain. Yeah, it's a very good point. Major League Baseball has done a lot here with the pitch clock where baseball throughout history has always been one of the few games without a clock. A lot of the dead time where a guy might step off the mound, take a little walk around, collect himself, maybe take a deep breath. You don't have that opportunity anymore. So for a pitcher, you really are kind of go, 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 especially in the late innings for a guy like Domingo Herman, who's chasing history. I would imagine that you are kind of in fight or flight survival mode, knowing how close you are to this and knowing also you don't get a chance to take a break there. You have to get right back on the mound and throw the next pitch. And so I think it is definitely special to do it in this new clock era. I mentioned this is the fourth perfect game for the New York Yankees. Do you have a favorite? Like, is there a game that's more perfect than perfect? The perfect test? <laughs> the most perfect game, I guess, in Yankees history, just based on the setting, based on the opponent, would have to be Don Larson in the 1956 World Series. The fact that Larson, who uh, was famously described as 
the imperfect man. He and Yogi Berra teamed on the greatest day of their careers together. And for Larson, a guy who over the course of his career, he was not a great pitcher. He was a good pitcher, but he was not the kind of guy that you're going to talk about and saying he was one of the all-time greats. But for one day, he was, and it happened to be in the World Series against the Brooklyn Dodgers, and the Yankees went on to win that World Series. It happened to be a moment when it really counted. Brian Hook, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. MLB writer Brian Hoke. He's also the author of the upcoming book, 62, Aaron Judge, the New York Yankees, and the Pursuit of Greatness. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Still ahead on 90.9 WBUR, Chicago smoke, wildfire smoke this week, gave Chicago the worst air quality in the world, a pulmonological pulmonologist weighs in coming up on WBUR. Check your inbox as another way to follow the news from the station. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today gives you a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org newsletters. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. Been a pretty nice day today. Spotty showers around this evening. Overnight tonight should be partly cloudy, mainly dry, down around the mid-60s. Then for tomorrow, sunny skies for the most part, light breezes, highs close to 80 degrees. The weekend should bring sunshine on Saturday, the off chance of a shower in the afternoon. Then Sunday, heavier on the clouds, showers more likely during the day, with highs both days at about 80 degrees. Red Sox have a 6-10 start time with the Miami Marlins tonight at Fenway Park as they meet up for the third and final game of their series. 75 degrees in Boston. The time is 449. WBUR supporters include Babson. Top ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. When B.A. Parker's grandmother died, she felt like she lost her family's history. Losing my grandmother was kind of like losing that library of knowledge. Parker set out to recover that knowledge by visiting the place where her ancestors were enslaved. On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. In his new book, Ben Terrace profiles Beltway power players to tell a story about Washington and the culture that drives it. It's called The Big Break, the gamblers, party animals, and true believers trying to win in Washington while America loses its mind. And as the title suggests, it's filled with some pretty interesting people. Sean McElwee is this fascinating character in Washington, a rising star Democratic pollster, started an organization called Data for Progress. He had been kind of a big deal in Democratic politics as a socialist, Democratic socialist type, hosting happy hours in New York City when he lived there. He's become a more pragmatic member of the the Democratic coalition now that he's moved to Washington and doing polls that the Biden White House loves. But as we soon learn, not everything is as it seems. Terrace explains why he took this approach. The point of the book was to find people that most Americans have not heard of, right? I mean, Washington is filled with characters who are unbelievably interesting, filled with drama, filled with intrigue. And so much of, of the Washington, you know, book genre focuses on very specific people, famous people. Yeah. And I wanted to find people that like 
you know, evoked what Washington was really like in an interesting way and could feel new. And Sean was one of these great characters in that way. He used to be the abolish ice guy, and then he became the please stop saying defund the police guy. And so I thought that made him interesting in general. But then in spending time with him, I found out that he was actually much more interesting than that and, and for reasons that he probably wished were not interesting, uh, including a gambling habit. You know, I'd go to poker games at his house and the gambling he was doing often had less to do with cards and more to do with politics. He was a pollster who bet on elections, including elections he worked on, including against candidates he worked for. Uh, kind of a Pete Rose of politics situation that I couldn't believe he was talking about openly in front of a journalist and bragging about with his friends. And when it comes to Sean and uh, specifically his gambling habit on the political races he's working on, you make this point at the end of the book that you can get away with a lot when you're right. Swagger, loose lips, an ostentatious gambling habit, but that changes very quickly when you're suddenly not seen as the up-and-comer or the winner or somebody that people want to be around and associate with. And it's interesting to me how quickly that happens. It seems like suddenly on a dime, his gambling went from a joke among a lot of Democratic uh, operatives to, well, we can't be associated with this guy because of this. Yeah, I mean, for a while, he was like a wonderkind, right? And when you're a wonderkind and you are getting bigger clients and your polls are helping the Democratic cause and you've created this tool that your team appreciates, people think of him as, oh, well, you know, he's got eccentricities, right? He Maybe he gambles on politics. Maybe he encourages his staff to gamble. Maybe he even Venmos them money and calls it DFP stimmies for data for progress stimulus that he gives to his staff so they will bet on politics. Maybe he does all that sort of stuff, but he's helping us win. And he's a team player. We're a team. So we support him, right? There's there's, Washington is like kind of a funny place sometimes, right? I, I hope that people can read it as a romp, but also read it, understand why things are the way they are, and realize that, you know what, things are twisted there, and this is why. Let's talk about another person who probably could not exist, at least not in this in this blatant form before Donald Trump came to Washington, and that's Robert Strick who finds a place for himself as somebody with loose ties to Trump world, somebody who can get people in with Trump world, and he finds himself uh, creating this career for himself as, as a lobbyist to foreign governments, often unsavory foreign governments. I've been profiling kind of oddball characters for, for a long time, and I've, I've never met anyone quite like Robert Strick. In reading about his story, it seemed to me on one hand... This is something that seems brand new and unusual, right? Just this one person striking up a, a deals with increasingly controversial countries for increasingly to- controversial topics and, and and just trading in on the fact that 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 he has some loose ties to Trump world. But on the other hand, isn't he really doing what's been done all along, but he's just a little more blatant about it? He has this quote to you at the end. Once Biden has become president, his business model has dried up where he says, I only got a four year crack at it. I want another four year crack at it. I deserve it. I earned it. I'm still here today. Those bleep, bleep, bleep got 40 years to do it and bleeped this country up. I want four more years. Doesn't he kind of have a point there? Uh, Yeah. First of all, there's a lot of bleeping when you talk to to Robert Strick. Uh, Yeah. And he does sort of have a point. I mean, the point of this book was to look at the years after Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump came. Uh, The book is called The Big Break, right? And it's called that because the country went through a big break. 
this is what you know what happened when Trump shook up the the, the country's psyche for for four years and longer. In a lot of ways, Washington was revealed to be what it was because of Trump. He showed kind of this griftiness and this obsession with showmanship that was always there, but you could see it even more clearly once he was president. And after the fact, once once Biden comes in, a lot of the rules um, of how to play the game revert back to where they were to a degree. I think Trump has changed Washington in a lot of ways. But for somebody like Strick, who was able to take advantage of the Trump moment, it wasn't really clear how he could take advantage of the Biden moment the same way. Mm -hmm. He'd gotten in the door, but now people weren't necessarily as interested in talking to him because there was a president who did things in a more, quote unquote, normal way than when Trump was around. I want to ask you a couple questions about your writing process and your reporting process, because you have this book, but I also think for years, the profiles you've you've written for The Washington Post have been some of the the most insightful profiles about people in Washington that are out there. And with Strick, you let the reader into something that usually is not reflected in a book or a piece, and that is how someone responds in real time to the idea of you reporting on them and profiling them. You're someone who's very skilled at getting people to open up to you. And I feel like you do write with a lot of empathy, but sometimes because of the details you've acquired, you can write details and scenes that are just devastating. And I'm wondering how you handle this response of a person you profiled as a reporter and as a person. Well, it's very difficult, honestly. I mean, uh, when somebody trusts me with their story, that is a lot of responsibility. It's their story, not mine. But that's only the case to a degree, right? Because they also have a story they want to tell. And my job is to tell the story that I think is true. And I think somebody like Strick appreciated that I was taking him seriously. A lot of folks didn't take him seriously. He's a he's a strange guy. He's a cowboy hat wearing, uh, you know, guy who lives out on Alibi Farm, who couldn't make it work as a lobbyist for many years, went out and became a uh, uh, owned a winery in Oregon, ran for the mayor of a small town in California, got basically run out of town. He's a strange guy who is not often taken seriously. I did take him seriously. But the problem with being taken yeah. seriously is I take it very seriously. And sometimes I'm finding things that people aren't comfortable with. I'm revealing things about people that they're not comfortable with. And it can be difficult because everyone has a story they want to tell about themselves. And that's not always the truest story. It's Washington Post reporter Ben Terrace. His new book about Washington is called The Big Break. Ben, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. This is NPR. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Some lingering clouds around overnight tonight, but clear spots too. Lows about the mid-60s. Tomorrow, a nice wrap-up to the work week. We should have sunshine for the most part, warming to about 80 once again. The weekend should bring sunshine Saturday, the off chance of a shower in the afternoon. Then Sunday, more gray with likely showers during the day. It's 4.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. CY Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. An Alt-E-Store, providing Massachusetts with solar power, battery backup systems, and advice for solar installers and do-it-yourselfers. Altestore.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. One for the history books today. The U.S. Supreme Court says colleges and universities across the country cannot consider race when they decide whether to admit an applicant. Some longtime advocates of affirmative action react. Well, it feels tragic. Uh, it's a great, great disappointment, a great loss. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Nina Totenberg's report is coming up. Also ahead, the study of treatments for short-term back pain finds that opioids may not be the best approach. The results throw into question the current guidelines. And ahead, science and the environment. An update on newly discovered gravitational waves, a robot designed with inspiration from nature, and why orcas might be attacking boats near the coast of Europe. It's 501 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A divided Supreme Court today has struck down affirmative action in college admissions, ruling that race cannot be a factor. The court's conservative majority overturning cases reaching back 45 years and invalidating admissions plans at both Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Speaking today in Washington, President Biden said he disagrees with the court and sides with the university. I believe our colleges are stronger when they are racially diverse. Our nation is stronger because we use what we, because we are tapping into the full range of talent in this nation. Much like the overturning of Roe versus Wade last year, the latest ruling achieves a long-sought conservative legal goal. The court's decision will have a major effect at many colleges and universities, which consider the race of applicants, forcing them to look at new ways of achieving diversity. Former Vice President Mike Pence met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky today during a surprise trip to the country. NPR's Kelsey Snell reports. Former Vice President Pence made the trip to Ukraine as a private citizen, traveling with the American evangelical humanitarian group Samaritan's Purse. Pence met Ukrainian President Zelensky at the presidential palace in Kyiv and visited several sites that have been attacked by Russian forces. The trip makes Pence the first GOP presidential candidate to meet with Zelensky since the campaign began. Pence has spoken frequently about his support for Ukraine. He says it is in America's best interest to defend freedom and democracy abroad. That puts him in direct conflict with other GOP candidates like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former President Donald Trump, who have floated cutting aid to Ukraine. 
Kelsey Snell, NPR News, Washington. Record-breaking heat continues across Louisiana and other parts of the South and is forecast to stay through the weekend. New Orleans has already reached a record number of excessive heat warnings this year. Porter Casey set you on from station WWNO as more. Heat index values are expected to reach highs of 113 to 120 degrees this week across the state of Louisiana. A high-pressure system in Texas is causing a heat dome across the south, and winds from the Gulf of Mexico are fueling a rise in humidity. Forecasters say that overnight temperatures in some cities will remain as high as 80 degrees. New Orleans and other cities across the state are telling residents to use cooling areas, such as public pools, as a way to stay out of the heat. Officials also say to drink plenty of water, take lots of breaks in the shade and AC, and to also check in on elderly and disabled family and neighbors. They also warn against leaving children or pets in cars. For NPR News, I'm Casey Satyawan in Homa. The government today released revised first quarter growth numbers showing the U.S. economy expanding at a stronger than expected 2% rate in the January through March period. Revised Commerce Department report shows continued strong spending by consumers helping to power that growth. A mix close on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 269 points. The Nasdaq lost a fraction. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. We have more now on the Supreme Court's historic ruling that no longer allows colleges to consider an applicant's race in its admissions process. Harvard University says it will comply with the Supreme Court's decision that outlaws its affirmative action admissions policy. Today, incoming President Claudine Gay released a message to the Harvard community. For many, this decision feels deeply personal. It means the real possibility that opportunities will be foreclosed. But at Harvard, it has also strengthened our resolve to continue opening doors. This morning, Congresswoman Catherine Clark told WBUR's Radio Boston she is worried about the consequences of the ruling. This is reversing five decades of precedent and progress. And I am frankly concerned about the impact uh, here in Massachusetts on our institutions of higher learning and around the country. Governor Moore Healy calls the decision disappointing. Local education leaders say they're committed to welcoming students who have been historically underrepresented in higher ed. A hearing will be held later this summer on the competency of defrocked Catholic Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, who is facing, facing sexual assault charges. The Norfolk DA's office said today experts have determined the 92-year-old McCarrick might not be capable of going on trial. McCarrick is accused of sexually abusing a teenaged boy at a wedding reception at Wells College in 1974. He has pleaded not guilty to the charges. The air quality in parts of the state will continue to be affected by the smoke drifting down from wildfires in Canada. The State Department of Environmental Protection just announced that it's extending an air quality alert through tomorrow in the Worcester area and four central and western Massachusetts counties. The air is expected to be unhealthful for groups including those with heart or lung disease. Some isolated showers around over the next few hours, but mainly dry. Should stay dry tonight. Lows in the mid-60s. A good share of sunshine tomorrow, rising again to just about 80. This is WBUR. It's 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court effectively ended race-conscious admissions policies at colleges and universities across the country. 
By a 6-3 vote, the court invalidated admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. The decision reverses decades of precedent upheld over the years by narrow Supreme Court majorities. Chief Justice John Roberts, a longtime critic of affirmative action programs, wrote the decision for the court majority. Many universities, he said, have for too long concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Noting that the court's most recent affirmative action decision in 2003 had suggested that there would have to be an end to such programs at some future point, Roberts essentially said that time has now come. It feels tragic. Columbia University President Lee Bollinger has for 30 years been a leading proponent of affirmative action. It feels like uh, the country has been on a course of choosing between a a continuation of the great era of civil rights and uh, another view of we've done this long enough and we need a whole new uh, approach in the society. It's now the second choice. That sentiment echoed Justice Sonia Sotomayor's dissent. The court, she said, entrenches protection by further entrenching racial inequality in education, the very foundation of our democratic government and pluralistic society. Justice Kachanji Brown-Jackson, the court's first female justice, chimed in, quote, With a let-em-eat-cake obliviousness, she said, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law, she said, does not make it so in life. Indeed, the reality is that in those places where affirmative action has been eliminated, there's been a severe drop in minority and particularly African-American admissions. NYU law professor Melissa Murray was the acting dean at the University of California, Berkeley in 2016 and 17, when a state referendum barred the use of race in college admissions decisions. There was an immediate drop-off in the number of African-American students, and that was both a confluence of the change in the admissions policy, but also um, African-American students not wanting to go under those conditions. People want to be with other people like them. They don't want to be spotlighted. There is a kind of comfort in numbers, and it was very difficult, I think, for a very long time to recruit under those conditions. Indeed, the situation got so bad, she says, that she had to go to the president of the state university system to get permission to place clusters of African-American students in classes instead of sprinkling them around. Now every school will be in that situation, or so it may seem. The court did not entirely close the door to racial considerations in college admissions. As Roberts put it, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life. What's more, the court specifically left open the possibility that the nation's military academies, because of their, quote, distinct interests, may be able to continue with their very successful affirmative action programs, which have resulted in a very diverse officer corps. University of California professor Jerome Carabell. That issue is so sensitive because it raises the uh, question of national security 
that the court has backed away from following its own logic. And he notes that a similar logic might apply to police forces seeking to recruit minorities so as to ensure that a virtually all-white force would not be policing a majority black town. For the vast majority of colleges and universities in the country, however, diversity will no longer be an acceptable rationale for taking race into account. The decision likely will cause ripples in every aspect of the nation's economic, educational, and social life, from the Rooney Rule that requires a minority applicant to be considered in all NFL coach hiring decisions, to employment and promotion decisions, DEI programs in schools and workplaces, and much, much more. Harvard Law Professor Randall Kennedy. We're going to be fighting about this for the next 30 years. Professor Kennedy points to what he calls double talk in the Supreme Court's majority decision. Take two signs, he says. One says black people stay out and contrast it with a sign that says black people welcome. Both have race in them. Are they truly both racially discriminatory? Well, the Supreme Court, at least in one side of its mouth, seems to suggest that, yeah, they're both racially discriminatory. But then at the end of his opinion, it says, well, of course, one can look favorably upon somebody who has overcome racial uh, impediments. Indeed, today's Supreme Court decision, plus dissents and concurrences, reached a book-sized 237 pages. Race has never been an easy subject for Americans to deal with, and it's about to get a lot harder. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This week, it is hard to make out skyscrapers, hard to see past the bleachers in Wrigley Field, and for many, hard to breathe. I'm talking about Chicago, which is blanketed in smoke from wildfires in Canada. Chicago claimed the world's worst air quality at one point this week. We'll talk more about conditions in the city and the impact smoke is having on people who live there. We have called Dr. Ravi Kalhan. He is a pulmonologist at Northwestern Medicine. Welcome. Thank you. So it's smoky today on the East Coast, too, but I gather nothing like what you were seeing, nothing like what you were breathing in Chicago. Paint me a picture of what it's been like there this week. Well, it's been pretty awful outside. Just walking out the door, one could smell smoke. Someone I know described it as the smell of burning tires. And then, as you alluded to, visibility was really impaired. Like, normally driving into the city, I can see the beautiful skyline and There was no sight of it over the past few days. It's a disconcerting feeling to not be able to see through smoke. So we can all smell, you know, we get a sense of what the burning tires smell like. Um, I know here in Washington, I'm feeling my eyes burn and itch. But as a pulmonologist, walk me through the effect of all of this on a person's lungs. Yeah, so what we're inhaling and smelling with the wildfire situation is wood smoke particles. So these are fine particles that actually get inhaled deep into one's lungs. Now, on the way into the lungs, they pass the nose and go through the windpipe and into the lungs. So anyone who's healthy even will feel watery eyes, like you mentioned, Mary Louise, but also maybe some nasal irritation or a sore throat or a hoarse voice or even coughing. 
the particles can then get deep in the lung and cause an inflammatory reaction. So individuals who have chronic lung conditions like asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, can actually have flare-ups of their disease take place on the basis of being exposed to these particles. The other group that can be at risk are people who are prone to heart conditions. That inflammatory reaction that occurs in the lungs can set off an inflammatory reaction throughout the body, which has been associated with risks of having heart attacks and strokes. And we've been talking about people who may have underlying conditions or increased sensitivity. What about somebody who's 20, 30 years old, doesn't have underlying conditions? Is it at the point where you're saying, look, just don't go outside for a jog this week? In general, these single-day exposures to someone who's a healthy young adult probably don't have a huge number of health consequences. But Chicago, the air quality index got almost to 300 So if someone sat outside for the full day in an air quality index of 300, that's like smoking half a pack of cigarettes. But the concerning thing is we're seeing more and more days like this. These aren't one-off experiences. And then we think about people spending large portions of their lifetimes, young adults or teenagers or children, being exposed to these things. In the long run, this creates a pretty significant potential public health risk. And is damage, any damage that may come from inhaling the smoky air, is it permanent? Well, we don't know. It's really uncertain. We don't have a lot of information about the life course of respiratory health. This is something I'm actually working on actively as I lead a 4,000-person young adult study where we're trying to follow healthy young adults throughout their lifetime. And it turns out that exposure to air pollution is one of our primary areas of interest. But we won't know for 20 years. It stands to reason, though, that inhaling chemicals and dusts into the lungs is not healthy. We know that from smoking, right? So I think that it's logical that this could have adverse health consequences. The increased frequency of these days is really worrisome. And in the long run, we'll have to understand how to better mitigate against the risk. Huh. It sounds like, uh, you know, one one consequence of this unfortunate situation is you're going to have a bigger study group to look at over those next 20 years as you try to figure out what, what this may mean for all of us. That's true, although I would trade a clear day for that, for that benefit. <laughs> Indeed. Wishing you clear days in the future and that the smoke may pass soon. Thanks so much, Mary Louise. That's Dr. Ravi Kalhan. He is Deputy Division Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at... Northwestern. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, the U.S. Supreme Court decision that effectively ends affirmative action and how it affects colleges and universities in Massachusetts. Stay tuned for that story and much more. We will comply with the court's decision, but it does not change our values. We continue to believe deeply that a thriving, diverse intellectual community is essential to academic excellence and critical to shaping the next generation of leaders. 
The message from Harvard University's present today and other reaction coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. The Dow rose eight-tenths of a percent today. S&P gained nearly a half percent, and the Nasdaq ended flat. The owner of the Encore Casino in Everett says it's looking forward to ratification of the agreement it reached with union workers. Wynn Resorts says the deal provides compensation that's among the highest in the Bay State's gaming industry. Union members will vote on the agreement tomorrow. They say it does include the benefits that they had wanted. And pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly is set to buy Cambridge-based biotech company Sigalon Therapeutics. The deal announced today is said to be worth nearly $310 million. Lilly already owns about 8% of Sigalon. The companies are working on cell therapies for type 1 diabetes. The forecast is coming up. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Bionova Scientific, a biologics CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Some spotty showers around this evening. Overnight tonight, lows about 65 degrees. Tomorrow, a lot of sunshine, close to 80 degrees once again. This is WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Time now for some science news with our friends at NPR's Shortwave Podcast. Regina Barber and Jeff Brumfield are here now for our science roundup. Good to have you both here. Hi, Ari. Hey, Ari. As usual, you've brought us three stories this week. Give us a tease. We've got a story about newly discovered gravitational waves and a new robot that borrows engineering from the natural world. And speaking of the natural world, we've got some ideas about why killer whales might be attacking boats off the coast of Europe. I'm obsessed with those killer whales, but I'm a (laughs) save the best for last kind of guy. So, Regina, I know you love robots. Why don't you kick us off with that story? I do. Um, But this new robot is unlike many we've seen before. Scientists describe it in the journal Nature Communications this week, and they're calling it the Multimodal Mobility Morphobot, or M4 for short. This sounds like something out of Transformers, the Morphobot. What what does it actually do? Uh, It's made to adapt in real time to different situations, like think search and rescue operations where time is crucial. It can combine two abilities, ground and aerial search, into one, and it has many more abilities. And one team scientist said that this could be revolutionary. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that something a scientist was building could be revolutionary. A little skeptical, huh? mm, A little bit. (laughs) Okay, okay. But this new robot can perform eight specific tasks that help it adapt to all kinds of environments. Are you ready for all eight? It slices, it dices, it even sautés. <laughs> yes, yes. It can roll, it can crawl, it can crouch under things, it can balance, it can tumble over objects, it can scout ahead, fly like a drone, and pick up things and transport them. It has these four wheels that help it do all those things, but sometimes it only needs 
too. So basically straight out of Black Mirror. What, what does it look like? <laughs> I think it's happier than Black Mirror. Um, but <laughs> if you watch videos of this thing, it looks like a cart about the size of a like a medium terrier. And it has wheels that shift so the robot can actually stretch like a cat in the sun. It's about as heavy as a chubby cat, actually. And it can limbo under things. And inside these wheels are propellers. So they rotate direction when it needs to fly like this big drone. I mean, it sounds like it's a bird. It's a plane. It's a cat. Yeah, like there's a whole natural world theme here. In fact, the scientists say they drew inspiration from all these different ways animals repurpose their limbs. Some they mentioned as inspiration in the paper were meerkats standing on their hind legs to kind of scout, birds that use their wings to crawl up inclines, sea lions that use their flippers to swim, but also to walk on land. And as they work to move this beyond the prototype stage, it's all about repurposing what we already have. And also, I should note that this research was funded by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory because shape-shifting robots like this might also be really useful in space. Well, speaking of space, Jeff, for our second story, you have some news about giant gravitational waves. Tell us more. Yeah, indeed. So gravitational waves are, of course, wrinkles in the fabric of space and time itself. Of course. Scientists have been (laughs) hunting for them for the past decade or so. And now they found really compelling evidence for the biggest waves they've ever seen. These are similar in size to like the entire Milky Way galaxy. This is bending my brain. What does such a wave even do? Yeah, I mean, basically, gravitational waves are created by distortions from really heavy objects. It kind of makes space and time itself wiggle like jello. They were first discovered in 2015 using a bunch of lasers and mirrors in different parts of the U.S. And they've actually seen things like the collapsing core of a star that's about to explode. But the lasers and stuff only work for short wavelengths. And so they've had to come up with this really novel way of tracking down these super long wavelength uh, galaxy-sized waves. How on Earth do you measure a gravitational wave the size of a galaxy? Well, you don't do it on Earth. That's the answer. Oh, okay. you, uh, you have to go out beyond the Earth. And so they actually used a special kind of star called a pulsar. Yeah, I actually love pulsars. Fun fact, they're super fast spinning stars that are leftover stuff from explosions, supernova, and they send out radio signals like a metronome from their poles. And this signal, if it's towards us and we can observe it, they're like clocks in the sky. That's right. So this group called Nanograv used 68 of these pulsars spread across the Milky Way. And basically, they watched them all really carefully to note any changes in how they ticked, how the sort of natural clocks uh, ticked away. And then by looking at how the ticking of these pulsar clocks changed relative to each other, they could actually detect the waves as they kind of wiggled the whole galaxy. This sounds really cool, but what does it all mean, Jeff? Isn't the wonder of the universe enough for you, Ari? (laughs) I thought scientists always wanted meaning. (laughs) What does it do? Well... Honestly, they kind of still don't know what it means. Um, There's a couple of things. It could mean that they're catching the collisions of huge black holes billions of times the mass of the sun. Or it could be a signal from the dawn of the universe itself. Uh, They've got to keep listening to try and figure it out. Anyway, we can talk about whales now. Yeah, let's talk about whales instead, (laughs) because... (laughs) Our third story's got real eat-the-rich vibes. What's going on with the orcas? 
<laughs> right. So, you know, for people who haven't seen this, it's been happening for more than a year around the Strait of Gibraltar, this waterway that boats have to slip through to get from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean Sea and back. Uh, pods of orcas have been attacking boats, biting off parts of a rudder or just sometimes ramming them. Yeah, our colleague Scott Newman looked into this recently, and he found that scientists and sailors say the attacks seem to be happening more. And it doesn't appear that anyone has been seriously hurt. But the question is, why? Like, why are these orcas doing this? It seems significant that this is only happening in one specific part of the world, right? Right. I mean, at least one scientist believes that a female leader of a group of about 40 orcas may have had like a traumatic experience with a boat or a fishing net, and that she's basically teaching her pod mates to respond with aggression, to take revenge on other boats. I want to guess who would play her in the movie, but I'm not going to compare any famous actress to a whale, so I'll just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> it's like Avatar, the new Avatar. But, but other scientists are skeptical of this idea because there are plenty of places around the world where orcas have interacted with people, with boats, and where they haven't seen them turn on boats like this. And another theory is that the orcas are just playing around, that they actually like how like a boat rudder feels on the back of their body. And so they bite the rudder. They're doing it because they're frustrated it's not moving. Oh, like the way my dogs get frustrated when I stop playing with them when they have a toy. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's the that's the theory. But, you know, these are just theories. And scientists really don't know for sure what's going on. Uh, but we do know, according to this one study, that since 2020, there have been more than 500 encounters between boats and orcas in this area. And they don't seem to be slowing down. So, Ari, the next time you're on the all things considered yacht off the Iberian <laughs> coast, just keep an eye out. I think that's considered news you can't use. <laughs> science correspondent Jeff Brumfield and Regina Barber from NPR's science podcast, Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Thank you both. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. And The Huntington, presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, now through July 23rd at the Huntington Theater. Huntingtontheater.org. prize-winning musician Rhiannon Giddens. Should you sing a spiritual like you, a 78-year-old black woman from Alabama? No. <laughs> sing a spiritual like you are. 
Because, like, what are spirituals anyway? They're amalgamation of African and European musical elements. So it's like, why does anybody own that? Nobody owns that. Have respect. That's On Point, tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. A divided Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions, saying race can't be a factor. The cases involved admissions at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in the opinion that the school's programs employ race in a negative manner and involve racial stereotyping. Allison Byerly is president of Carleton College in Minnesota. It's the kind of ruling that you would call very disappointing, except we're not disappointed. It's it's the ruling that we were led to expect by the conversation that, that's led up to it. Um, I do think that everyone has been thinking about how we might adjust to it, um, what we might do to continue to maintain the diversity that's important on our campuses. Speaking there to NPR's Here and Now, Carlton was part of an amicus brief in favor of affirmative action. President Biden says he strongly disagrees with the court's decision and says colleges are stronger when they're racially diverse. Three House committee chairmen sent letters to the Justice Department, IRS, and the Secret Service asking for interviews with employees involved in the government's investigation of President Biden's son, Hunter. NPR's Deirdre Walsh has more. The chairs of the House Judiciary Oversight and Ways and Means Committees are demanding to talk to more than a dozen officials at the Justice Department, FBI, IRS, and Secret Service. Their request follows whistleblower allegations that the investigation of Hunter Biden was, quote, purposely slow-walked and subjected to improper and politically motivated interference. Democrats argue the plea deal Hunter Biden recently agreed to for tax violations and a firearm offense was fair and appropriate. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. Wall Street in mixed territory by the closing bell. The Dow up 269 points. The Nasdaq was down a fraction. The S&P 500 up 19. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Children's Hospital today announced it has finalized a deal to acquire Franciscan Children's. Boston Children's is already the largest pediatric health care provider in the region. WBR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports the deal is part of a plan to expand mental health treatment. The number of children with severe depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts soared during the pandemic. Hospitals are still struggling to keep up. Leaders of Boston Children's and Franciscan Children's say merging will allow them to invest in mental health adding 24 inpatient beds and expanding outpatient treatment. Dr. Joseph Mitchell is chief executive of Franciscan Children's. This was really born out of a sense of urgency that we've got to do more to address the children's mental health epidemic, which has really been the the great tragedy of the pandemic. Boston Children's plans to spend more than $500 million to upgrade the Franciscan campus in Brighton. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Chelsea residents say lead paint chips are still flaking off the Tobin Bridge and contaminating their homes and yards. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation has announced it will install nets to contain the chips and eventually repaint the bridge, but Chelsea officials say the work needs to happen faster. WBR's Palomara reports. MassDOT representatives say repairing and repainting the Tobin Bridge will cost around $125 million the state will choose a contractor by October. 
Alex Strain is the director of Chelsea's Department of Housing and Community Development. But even a small handful of lead paint chips near daycares and houses with children are enough to cause lasting public health impacts. He says installing nets around the bridge won't prevent all lead paint chips from blowing off. He says the city of Chelsea is urging MassDOT to expedite the repainting process to start before the end of the year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. Heads up if you plan to drive along the westbound side of the Ted Williams Tunnel tonight. It'll be closed as of about 1 tomorrow morning from East Boston into South Boston and then reopen about 5 a.m. Drivers will be detoured through the Sumner Tunnel. It's 535. In the forecast tonight should be partly cloudy, down around 65 degrees. Tomorrow should feature more sunshine than we've had for most of the week, up to about 80 degrees once again. As of now, the weekend is looking sunny to start and then cloudy to finish. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org answers. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Supreme Court's historic decision today to strike down affirmative action in college admissions is of particular consequence in Massachusetts. The state has 149 public and private colleges and universities. WBUR's Max Larkin has been reading the decision today and gathering reaction to it. He joins me now in the studio. Max, how does the decision by the court have a greater impact in this region than in others? I think you hit at it already. I mean, it just happens to be a state for reasons of history uh, that is rich in colleges and universities that are all going to be reading this decision really closely. And it also has more than its share of really highly selective colleges where there's the most intense competition for seats. So two of the nation's four most selective and 10 of the nation's most selective 81 colleges. So uh, yeah, a lot of implications in the Bay State. Because the more selective colleges tend to use affirmative action in admissions. Exactly. And they have more control over the the class they shape using it. So why is Harvard extremely selective, one of the two schools at the center of this case? Lots of schools use racial preferences in admissions. Yeah, I think, first of all, the plaintiff group, Students for Fair Admissions, thought that they had a case of discrimination against Asian Americans. But I think symbolically, there's a bigger story. Harvard kind of pioneered this holistic uh, sort of non-determinative use of race in admissions. And by suing them and beating them, uh, they really struck at the heart of affirmative action as it was practiced legally in this country until today. And then finally, there's the PR ratings factor. Harvard tends to get some attention that maybe another school wouldn't. Just a little. Uh, what's the university saying in response to the ruling today? Well, first, that they will follow the law as it's been newly reinterpreted. Their lawyers, of course, will be working on what is now allowed under the change that the court has proposed. But some things change, others stay the same. So said uh, Claudine Gay, who will take over as Harvard's president in just a couple of days in a video statement released this afternoon. We will comply with the court's decision, but it does not change our values. We continue to believe deeply that a thriving, diverse intellectual community is essential to academic excellence and critical to shaping the next generation of leaders. So if Claudine Gay, uh, the incoming president of Harvard, says that it will comply with the court's decision but doesn't have to change its values, 
it has to change something because its way of selecting students has just been ruled unconstitutional. Yeah, that's unmistakable here. They have to go back to the drawing board, so to speak. So colleges will no longer be able to give a kind of determined formal tip to, say, a black student and an Asian student on the bubble. They can't give a a formal preference to the black student in the spirit of diversity. And as we've seen, Lisa, when systems like that come to an end uh, in statewide bans in California and Michigan, diversity tends to suffer. You tend to see fewer black and Latino students on those most selective campuses. And that alone comes with a sense of loss for some people. I spoke to Anthony Abraham Jack, who's a sociologist of education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, uh, headed to BU in just a couple days. And he started out as a low-income black student in Miami. And he said that now overthrown system of race-conscious admissions made his journey possible. I would not be uh, Amherst and Harvard alum and a tenured professor at Boston University if it wasn't for a university's ability to say he has potential and we're going to bet on him. I think an interesting point that Jack makes is that, you know, college admissions is a very competitive game. And he he thinks that there may still be paths for black and Latino students into highly selective schools, but it's going to help if those students have, you know, a a really one to one experience with a guidance counselor, tons of family resources. And so this is going to disadvantage the already disadvantaged. So what does the ruling today by the Supreme Court mean for other colleges and universities that may not be as selective as Amherst or Harvard? Uh, And we're talking here about both public and private schools. Yeah, I think you saw a shudder nationwide as every college that conducts an admissions process realized that they might have to fine-tune, refine, um, change uh, what they were doing. Um, but, you know, I, I do think there's still room to interpret this decision. It's it's only hours old. You know, I had more than one legal expert tell me today that the decision was surprisingly limited. They stopped short of saying it guts affirmative action. A- at the end of the decision, Lisa, it says it, it does not say that diversity is never a compelling interest for a college to pursue. It does not say that students can't talk about their race when they're applying Mm -hmm. to college, and it doesn't say that universities can't consider their race when they do talk about it. I spoke to Ivan Espinoza Madrigal. He's the executive director of Lawyers for Civil Rights, which supports affirmative action. And so when many diversity advocates sounded pretty downhearted today, he said, in effect, we dodged a bullet. This is not by any means outlawing affirmative action. It does not overrule any previous affirmative action cases. The court has overturned precedent it doesn't like. In this case, it didn't do that. Now, at the risk of getting too optimistic for the pro-affirmative action side, I had another lawyer tell me today that this may just be setting up yet sterner challenges to the practice of promoting diversity coming down the pike already in the Fourth Circuit, so next session in the Supreme Court. So, Max, uh, the practical impact of this will be what? What what will the ruling change, uh, not just at Harvard, but elsewhere? And also, what are students and prospective students telling you? Well, I, I think the, the thing that we have observed in those prior statewide bans has been described um, by one economist as a cascade effect, where black and Latino students either don't apply or don't get into the most selective institutions and go to the, le- the less selective peer institution in the University of California system, for example. Um, 
people on campus at Harvard are fearful of that outcome. They've kind of come, many of them, to cherish uh, the diversity that has grown at that school in recent years. I spoke to Rebecca Zhang, who's a rising sophomore at Harvard. She interns with the Coalition for a Diverse Harvard, which opposed the outcome that came out today. And I asked Rebecca whether her classmates actually care about the stakes of this case. They got in. Does it matter to them? And she says, judging from their reaction today, they care a lot. Harvard students are angry about this decision, and we're going to keep fighting. And I think it's not even just about getting into Harvard and once you're there, you're done. It's about creating a multiracial democracy and making sure that there are equitable opportunities. Zhang Lisa is one of the students who is assembling a, a rally on campus for this Saturday afternoon, and she says she expects it to be well attended. That's a pro-affirmative action rally. Exactly. If a school wants to build a racially diverse student body, now that it can't use affirmative action uh, the way it has been, what can it do without violating the Constitution? I think that's where it gets really tricky, and we're going to feel it out. Um, practically speaking, in the back and forth of case law. There have been things that have been tried before to use geography or socioeconomic status as a kind of um, metonym for race, you know, picking students based on those things and hoping that you get something like the diversity that you've seen so far. Also, recruitment in sort of underrepresented areas of the country, whether they be urban or rural, I think admissions officers are going to be traveling to both. But what we have found so far in the experience of states that have banned outright affirmative action uh, has been that those things do not make up for the kind of loss that comes with the ban. So I don't think we can expect I think we can expect some decline, some change on those campuses in the years ahead. Final question, Max. Who benefits from today's ruling? That is a difficult question. I think judging from past experience, we can expect white students and to a lesser extent Asian students to benefit who are applying to selective schools as it has historically meant that fewer black and Latino students will get in based on what we've seen in the past. WBR education reporter Max Larkin, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with season two of The Tower starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Easy Cater committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support, easycater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In a moment, we'll get the latest on a Russian general that U.S. officials believe has been detained for his alleged involvement in a failed military uprising over the weekend. We'll check in with our correspondent in Moscow about what this latest political intrigue means for Putin's leadership given Russia's war in Ukraine. First, though, we turn to the Supreme Court's rejection of affirmative action today. That decision means many of the nation's top universities are likely to see an immediate drop in black and Latino enrollment. As NPR's Adrian Florido reports, that's what happened in California after that state banned affirmative action 25 years ago. California knows all about what an affirmative action ban can mean for college campuses. When voters approved a ban that took effect in 1998, the impact of the state's top two public colleges was staggering. Enrollment at Berkeley and UCLA among Black and Hispanic students fell 40 percent immediately. 
Zachary Bleemer is a Princeton economist who's studied the ban's impacts on minority enrollment at University of California campuses. After Black and Latino numbers plummeted, the schools had to figure out how to get them back up using only race-neutral policies. It's been 25 years of trial and error. Experimenting with many different admissions policies. UC schools de-emphasized grades and test scores and began reviewing applicants more holistically. They stepped up recruitment in poorer communities that tend to be Black and Latino. They guaranteed spots to students who graduate in the top 9% of their high school classes. The goal of each of these policies was to replace race-based affirmative action by identifying disadvantaged students who are nevertheless going to succeed at these universities and admitting them. Through these race-neutral alternatives to race-based affirmative action, schools have been able slowly to regain much of the racial diversity they lost. But it was hard. It was hard. Mitchell Chang is Associate Vice Chancellor of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at UCLA, which recently enrolled its most racially diverse class since the ban took effect. There was no magic bullet. Some things work better than other things. And this is also work that uh, doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it's taken UCLA more than two decades to make up the lost ground. And still, Cheng says, his school is not where it wants to be. It still enrolls far fewer black and Latino students than their share of California high school graduates, a problem it didn't have before the affirmative action ban. So all these years later, it's still working to close that gap. The ban on race-conscious admissions had the biggest impact on Berkeley and UCLA, the state's two most selective public schools. Likewise, experts think that across the country, it is similarly competitive universities that will be most affected by the Supreme Court's ruling. Many of these schools have been preparing, including Pomona College, a small, very selective university in Southern California. Gabrielle Starr is its president, and she says every student her admissions officers let in is highly qualified to be there. But being able to consider race has allowed them to ensure they also put together a diverse class. Having a campus that looks like the world in which our students will go on to live is really important, just as a bedrock value. As a private school, Pomona wasn't subject to California's affirmative action ban. It will be to the Supreme Court's ruling. Starr started worrying about a possible national ban a couple of years ago as the Supreme Court solidified its conservative shift. So she started reaching out to schools like the UCs for guidance. She says it's going to take some time for Pomona College to figure out its next steps. We're going to to do our best. In the meantime, she fears her campus will become less racially diverse. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Los Angeles. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this evening. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Vladimir Putin's grip on power after the revolt in Russia. Listen to WBUR anywhere you're heading this summertime. Just tap to listen live and catch up on all that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now. The Air Quality Advisory for Worcester and counties in central and western Mass has been extended through tomorrow night. The State Department of Environmental Protection says the smoke from the Canadian wildfires is causing unhealthful air quality for sensitive groups. DEP advises anyone who has to be outside to limit prolonged or heavy outdoor exertion, take breaks, and have any relief medicine handy. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. 
Some isolated showers around, but mainly dry overnight tonight. Should stay dry through the night, and then tomorrow a good share of sunshine, rising to about 80 degrees. It's 550. WBUR supporters include members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. When B.A. Parker's grandmother died, she felt like she lost her family's history. Losing my grandmother was kind of like losing that library of knowledge. Parker set out to recover that knowledge by visiting the place where her ancestors were enslaved. On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. We're going to hand things off to NPR's Rachel Martin for another conversation in her series about how to build a life of meaning. It's called Enlighten Me. I'm pretty sure I don't believe in ghosts. Now I say pretty sure because I want to leave the possibility open. There have definitely been times when I felt the presence of my parents, who've both died. Like when one of their favorite songs comes on when I'm walking the aisles of the grocery store, or when the wind chime that my mom gave me sings a song even though there's no breeze. But straight up ghosts? Like seeing spirits? Is that real? Can that happen? I saw an elderly white man uh, who was half walking, floating through our bedroom. This is John Blake. He's a longtime reporter for CNN in Atlanta, and he wrote about this vision in his recent memoir. It's called More Than I Imagined. And we're going to get back to that apparition. But first, some context. Blake grew up in West Baltimore. He and his younger brother were raised by their dad, who was black. They only heard bits and pieces about their mom, but they knew she was white. And they knew that she and her parents and siblings had never made an effort to be in their life. I just felt like her her family's racist. She's probably racist. They just don't want me. And that's how I felt. John was 17 when he finally met his mother at a home for psychiatric patients where she was living outside of Baltimore. She had schizophrenia. After that initial interaction, he started visiting with her regularly. His mom's ability to have deep conversations was pretty limited, but they found ways to connect and developed a real relationship. John also got to know his mother's sister, and during one visit, she showed John a photo of his white grandfather, who he had never met. And when I saw that, I just felt... Just chill go through my body and just goosebumps just on my arms. And here is where we get to the metaphysical part of this story. He recognized the man in that photo. When he was around nine, he and his younger brother Patrick both woke up in the middle of the night to a frightening scene. I glanced over into the corner of my bedroom and there I saw an elderly white man uh, who was half walking, floating through our bedroom. And he was standing by my dresser And at first I thought I was, well, this is a dream. And I rubbed my eyes, but he just kept on staying there. And I just watched him watch. And when I awakened the next morning, I thought that was a dream. But then I talked to my younger brother, Patrick, and I said, did you see somebody last night? He said, yeah. He didn't see his dead grandfather again. And then decades later, when he was in his 30s, he was married and living in Atlanta. And this time, it was his wife who saw the frightening thing. I awakened one morning, and when I looked at her, her eyes were just huge, and she had this look of terror on her face. And I'm like, what's what's wrong? She said, I was awakened last night, and I saw this white man standing over the bed, looking down at you with this troubled expression on his face. 
and I tried to wake you up and you wouldn't wake up. And at that time, I I knew immediately who she was talking about. And I I got a picture of my mother's father. And uh, I said, was this the man? And she, she said, yeah. She said, who is that? And who, and who is he to you? Mm-hmm. And I said, it's my grandfather. I mean, it, it is such... It, a bizarre experience, yeah. right? Like, if we just assume, okay, right. let's just let let's just assume that it was him, that it was like a spirit or right. a ghost or whatever. Let's assume it was him. What? What? Why was he there? Well, that was the question I had. So I called up a buddy of mine. This is a guy who's a hospice worker, who I felt like had a sensitivity to these type of issues because he had worked with people who were dying, and he was a very spiritual person. Mm-hmm. And his name is Scott. I said, Scott, here's the story. What's going on? And he said, just think of it. The only stories you know about him are stories about his racism. This was the white man who called your father the N-word, mm-hmm. who wanted nothing to do with you because your father was black and died never knowing you. So the only thing you know about him is that he was just a racist, nothing more. Think about the torment that that might have caused. He could have had a relationship with you, but he didn't. And he, Scott said, I think this guy wants forgiveness. And I talked to a pastor who said the same thing. And he said, have you prayed for him? And I said, no, I never thought to pray for him. But that's what I did. I got on my knees and I prayed for him. But see, that was only the beginning. It's not enough to just pray for him because I didn't know him. I had to get to know him. And one of the things I learned from getting to know him, I, I began to see that he was more than his worst act. And I think that was really healthy for me because I, that helped me also reconnect with other members of my white family. Did you give him, did you give your grandfather that forgiveness? Yes. I mean, I just, I knew what it was like to grow up in an environment where you absorb racism and you don't even know it because that's all you know. I tell people... You know, a lot of racism is caught rather than taught. Nobody told me, hate white people. It was like in my environment. It was just part of my world. Mm -hmm. He grew up in a similar world in a different way. He grew up in a segregated white world. That was very common for men of his time to think that way. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I got to know him, and um, I know I've forgiven him. I, I don't feel this, like, tension or anger when I think about him anymore. I feel more than anything, I feel compassion for him. There will be those who hear your story and think that this is some nice kumbaya racial reconciliation. Mm. But the world is broken and America is plagued by all the structural racism and this kind of narrative, I can hear people thinking it, puts an unfair burden on black people to just forgive the racist white people in their life. Yeah, I'm very aware of, of those type of stories. And those stories imply that, golly, if we just hug white people, and uh, <laughs> we become friends, all of racism will disappear. And my story is not saying that. But what I will say to cynics is this. Okay. So I come from West Baltimore, and the only stories that come from West Baltimore about black people are the stories about rage and despair and anger and racism. And I tell people if we only write and tell stories that tell white people that racism is inerasable, that it can't be transcended, What are they going to do with that? Mm -hmm. What incentive do they have to change? Mm -hmm. You know, I think we have to become better storytellers. I think we have to tell more hopeful stories. 
if we're going to survive, because I feel like right now in this country, there's so many broken people who now believe that racism is embedded in our country, that people can't change, that it's a permanent part of being American. And I think one of the ways you deal with that is you have to tell stories to show people getting past racism. And if I've seen these white members of my family change in ways that I never expected, if I see myself change in ways that I never expected, that is worth sharing. John, thank you so much for taking so much time to have this conversation and for just your honesty and sharing the story. Thank you, Rachel. The book is called More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. It's written by John Blake. And you can find more from Rachel Martin's Enlighten Me series at npr.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Supreme Court has effectively struck down affirmative action in college admissions. While the court can render a decision, it cannot change what America stands for. The ruling reverses decades of precedent. The consequences coming up on this Thursday, June 29th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, five days after a malicious revolt in Russia, Vladimir Putin is still standing, but for how long? The fifth and possibly final adventure for the intrepid archaeologist Indiana Jones. And ahead on Marketplace, there are about to be a lot more green bins on the streets of California. The state wants to rev up its program to compost wasted food. In the city of Los Angeles, our goal right now is to increase the 1,800 tons a day to 3,000 tons a day. The benefits and costs of composting coming up on Marketplace. It starts at 6.30. It's now 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. With a ruling today, the U.S. Supreme Court has effectively ended affirmative action in college admissions decisions. The ruling coming in cases filed against the University of North Carolina and Harvard. From member station GBH in Boston, Kirk Carapeza reports Harvard students are worried the decision will undermine college diversity efforts. The decision reverses more than 40 years of precedent that says colleges can directly consider race as one factor when deciding who to admit. Junior Elise Martin-Smith from Charlotte, Vermont, chairs Harvard's Black Students Association. She worries the ruling will lead to less racial diversity on campus. That's one of the concerns, but I think it not only affects the college communities, but it's also impacting our communities at large. 
the access to education, especially for students of color, is at risk. In his majority opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that racially selective college admissions programs violate the Equal Protection Clause, but schools should still be able to consider an applicant's discussion of how race has affected their life in an essay or interview. For NPR News, I'm Kirk Carapeza in Boston. The hundreds of wildfires continuing to burn in Canada, including more than 200 that are still out of control there, are likely to equate for a long, hot, smoky summer across much of North America, including the U.S., Currently, much of the eastern U.S. is again experiencing unhealthy air and haze from the fires, which is blown south. And forecasters say the current weather pattern is likely to provide little relief. Prediction coming from forecasters from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Cities experiencing unhealthy air today include Washington, D.C., New York City, Pittsburgh, and Detroit. Flight delays and cancellations are mounting again ahead of the July 4th holiday. NPR's Joel Rose reports it's expected to be the busiest day of the holiday period at airports across the country. Airlines and federal regulators have been pointing fingers over who's to blame for hundreds of delays and cancellations in recent days. United Airlines has seen the largest share of delayed flights this week. The airline's CEO, Scott Kirby, blamed the problems in part on a shortage of air traffic controllers in the New York City area. But Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is pushing back on that criticism. While there is a shortage of controllers, Buttigieg says United has its own problems that are not happening at other airlines. More than 4 million Americans are expected to fly this weekend, according to AAA, the most ever for the July 4th holiday. Joel Rose, NPR News. A former Florida sheriff's deputy has been found not guilty of failing to act during the 2018 Parkland High School massacre. Fired Broward County Deputy Scott Peterson wept as the verdict was read. The 60-year-old Peterson was deputy assigned to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where a shooter murdered 17 people there. Peterson arrived at the building about two minutes after the six-minute attack began. Prosecutors had claimed he should have gone inside to stop the shooter. Stocks closed higher on Wall Street, the Dow up 269 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. We've got more now on the Supreme Court decision today to strike down the use of affirmative action in college admissions. Harvard was one of two schools whose policies were at the core of the case. President-elect Claudine Gay says the university will continue to strive to be inclusive. She addressed the Harvard community in a video message today. We will comply with the court's decision, but it does not change our values. We continue to believe deeply that a thriving, diverse intellectual community is essential to academic excellence and critical to shaping the next generation of leaders. Harvard sophomore Rebecca Zhang is of Chinese descent. She's part of a coalition of students, professors, and Harvard alum that opposes striking down affirmative action. I think that one of the scariest parts of this case is that minorities are being pitted against each other. And it's really frustrating for me to watch Asian Americans being used as a racial wedge. But Harvard graduate student Natalie Lay says as an Asian American, she supports the ruling today. Affirmative action is systematically racist because I believe that everyone should be judged by their uh, merit. And then, of course, I I believe there are other uh, features, uh, such as socioeconomic background, that should be greatly considered. Lay says her skin color should not be a deciding factor in a plan to diversify an academic environment or workplace. There are questions about the competency of defrocked Catholic Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, who is facing sexual assault charges. The Norfolk District Attorney's Office said today defense and prosecution experts have determined the 92-year-old McCarrick might not be capable of going on trial. 
Once considered the most powerful Roman Catholic leader in the United States, McCarrick is accused of sexually abusing a teenage boy at a wedding reception at Wellesley College in 1974. He's pleaded not guilty. The court will hold a hearing on the competency report in August. And on Beacon Hill today, lawmakers went home for the weekend without reaching a deal on a new state budget. That means the state will begin another fiscal year without a permanent spending plan. That begins, the fiscal year begins on Saturday. The state has a supplemental budget that will be able to pay the bills until the end of July. Should have some lingering clouds overnight tonight, but some clear spots too. Lows in the mid-60s, and then a nice wrap-up to the work week tomorrow. Should have sunshine for the most part, warming to about 80 degrees once again. The weekend should bring sunshine on Saturday, the off chance of showers in the afternoon. Then for Sunday, heavier on the clouds, showers more likely during the day. Highs both days should top out at 80. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court effectively ended race-conscious admissions policies at colleges and universities across the country. In a pair of rulings along ideological lines, the court invalidated admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. The decision reverses decades of precedent upheld over the years by narrow Supreme Court majorities. Chief Justice John Roberts, a longtime critic of affirmative action programs, wrote the decision for the court majority. Many universities, he said, have for too long concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Noting that the court's most recent affirmative action decision in 2003 had suggested that there would have to be an end to such programs at some future point, Roberts essentially said that time has now come. It feels tragic. Columbia University President Lee Bollinger has for 30 years been a leading proponent of affirmative action. It feels like uh, the country has been on a course of choosing between a a continuation of the great era of civil rights and another view of we've done this long enough and we need a whole new approach in the society. It's now the second choice. That sentiment echoed Justice Sonia Sotomayor's dissent. The court, she said, entrenches protection by further entrenching racial inequality in education, the very foundation of our democratic government and pluralistic society. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, the court's first black female justice, chimed in, quote, With a let-them-eat-cake obliviousness, she said, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law, she said, does not make it so in life. Indeed, the reality is that in those places where affirmative action has been eliminated, there's been a severe drop in minority and particularly African-American admissions. NYU law professor Melissa Murray was the acting dean at the University of California, Berkeley in 2016 and 17, when a state referendum barred the use of race in college admissions decisions. 
there was an immediate drop off in the number of African American students. And that was both a confluence of the change in the admissions policy, but also African American students not wanting to go under those conditions. People want to be with other people like them. They don't want to be spotlighted. There is a kind of comfort in numbers, and it was very difficult, I think, for a very long time to recruit under those conditions. Indeed, the situation got so bad, she says, that she had to go to the president of the state university system to get permission to place clusters of African-American students in classes instead of sprinkling them around. Now every school will be in that situation, or so it may seem. The court did not entirely close the door to racial considerations in college admissions. As Roberts put it, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life. What's more, the court specifically left open the possibility that the nation's military academies, because of their, quote, distinct interests, may be able to continue with their very successful affirmative action programs, which have resulted in a very diverse officer corps. University of California professor Jerome Carabell. That issue is so sensitive because it raises the question of national security that the court has backed away from following its own logic. And he notes that a similar logic might apply to police forces seeking to recruit minorities so as to ensure that a virtually all-white force would not be policing a majority black town. For the vast majority of colleges and universities in the country, however, diversity will no longer be an acceptable rationale for taking race into account. The decision likely will cause ripples in every aspect of the nation's economic, educational, and social life, from the Rooney Rule that requires a minority applicant to be considered in all NFL coach hiring decisions, to employment and promotion decisions, DEI programs in schools and workplaces, and much, much more. Harvard Law Professor Randall Kennedy. We're going to be fighting about this for the next 30 years. Professor Kennedy points to what he calls double talk in the Supreme Court's majority decision. Take two signs, he says. One says black people stay out and contrast it with a sign that says black people welcome. Both have race in them. Are they truly both racially discriminatory? Well, the Supreme Court, at least in one side of its mouth, seems to suggest that, yeah, they're both racially discriminatory. But then at the end of his opinion, it says, well, of course, one can look favorably upon somebody who has overcome racial uh, impediment. Indeed, today's Supreme Court decision, plus dissents and concurrences, reached a book-sized 237 pages. Race has never been an easy subject for Americans to deal with, and it's about to get a lot harder. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. It's been 42 years since Raiders of the Lost Ark introduced audiences to a globe-trotting, bullwhip-snapping archaeologist played by Harrison Ford. In Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, his fifth and possibly final adventure, our hero keeps saying he's tired. But critic Bob Mondello says the actor who turns 81 next week still cracks a whip like nobody else. 
We begin in Germany, 1944. The Third Reich is in retreat, German soldiers piling looted plunder on a train. A hostage with a sack over his head gets dragged before a Nazi officer. The bag removed, it's Indy. Looking so persuasively 40-something, you may suspect you're watching an outtake from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Harrison Ford has been digitally de-aged. The most effective use yet of a technology that could theoretically let blockbusters hang in there forever with their original performers. Happily, the filmmakers have a different sort of time travel in mind here. After establishing that Ford's days of daring do aren't yet daring done, they flash forward a bit to 1969. A creaky older Indiana Jones reconnecting with the daughter of a fellow archaeologist. I'm retiring. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something on a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Because it's an adventure, obviously. Credit Ford with letting us see what the ravages of time have done to Indy. He's tired, everything hurts, but when bad guys show up, he can still rise to the occasion. Who are you people? What do you want? Dr. Jones! Dr. Jones, we're not gonna hurt you. Right, as if that were possible, more likely the other way around. Turns out that Helena, who's played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, is hoping to sell that dial gizmo at an auction in Tangier, and when Indy finally catches up with her, he discovers someone else is looking for it too. You, have we met? No. My memory's a little fuzzy, but your face rings a bell. Are you still a Nazi? That's Indy, always the diplomat. 150. After our conversation, Michelle, I thought we'd come to an agreement about the dime. Funny, the last time I saw the other guy who looks like you, he was also after this. This relic is my property. It's not yours. You stole it. Then you stole it. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. The bid is 160. 160. 170. You should have stayed in New York. 170. You should have stayed out of Poland. 170. Anyone? Anyone? Going? Going! Gone! As in out the door and across Tangier in a mad dash on three-wheeled tuk-tuks. Director James Mangold, who knows something about bidding farewell to aging heroes, he's the guy who helped Wolverine shuffle off to glory in Logan, finds ways to check off a lot of indie touchstones in the Dial of Destiny, booby-trapped caves that require problem-solving. Water displacement. Airplane flights across maps, ancient relics with supernatural properties, no snakes, but plenty of critters that resemble them, and of course, Nazis. Hitler made mistakes, and with this, I will correct them all. Mengold's action sequences may not have the lightness Spielberg gave Indy's previous adventures, but they're still madcap and decently exciting. And though in plot terms the climax is, let's say, ill-advised, the filmmaker clearly knows what he has. A hero beloved for being human in an era when so many film heroes are superhuman. So Mangold does the thing indie fans and Harrison Ford fans want. And in Dial of Destiny's final moments, he dials up the emotion. I'm Bob Mandela.
beauty pageants may have a reputation for upholding outdated ideas on the standards of femininity and womanhood, but a new pageant is taking a more inclusive approach. You can hear from the very first winner of the Miss Trans Africa pageant. That's on the next morning edition from NPR News. You can listen on air, online, or try asking your smart speaker to play your local NPR member station by name. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street. The Dow rose eight-tenths of a percent today. S&P gained nearly half a percent, and the Nasdaq ended flat. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. The police chief in Dighton is facing securities fraud charges. The U.S. attorney in New York today alleged that Chief Sean Cronin acted on a tip that Portola Pharmaceuticals was going to be acquired by Alexion Pharmaceuticals. Cronin allegedly bought stock in Portola before the sale became public and reaped a huge profit. The police chief turned himself over to authorities today. The Dighton Police Department has not responded to WBR's requests for comment. And pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly is set to buy Cambridge-based biotech company Sigalon Therapeutics. The deal announced today is said to be worth nearly $310 million. The companies are working on cell therapies for type 1 diabetes. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Listen to WBUR anywhere you're heading this summer. Just tap to listen live and catch up on everything that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Red Sox have another chance to try to top the Miami Marlins tonight as they meet up for the third and final game of their series at Fenway. Brian Bayo pitches for Boston. Jesus Luzado for Miami. The game is now underway. It was an early game that started about 10 minutes ago. No score yet in the first inning. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Five days and counting since the revolt in Russia. And Vladimir Putin is still standing. But for how long? The events of this past weekend mark the greatest challenge to Putin's rule since he came to power 23 years ago. And now a U.S. official has confirmed to NPR that a top Russian general with ties to Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin has been detained. It is not clear if General Sergei Surovikin supported the uprising, but the ties between the general and Prigozhin go back years. We also know that these two individuals see themselves as being in the thick of the war and the struggle, and they see the elites in Moscow, you know, to be more corrupt, to be not really fighting uh, for their motherlands. And so that creates a certain potential proximity of how they view things. 
That is Gulnaz Sharafudinova. She's director of the Russia Institute at King's College London. When I spoke with her today, I asked her take on how wounded Putin is. That's the very big question, right? I like to compare what happened to sort of like a glitch in the matrix. This might be for American audiences. Uh, Remember that black cat and the glitch in the matrix that reveals that there is a matrix, right? And we saw that glitch in Russia, you know, things that have been under the radar, things that have not been shown to the population uh, in their own immediacy, that is the real conflicts that exist among the elites, all of a sudden uh, it was on display. And no wonder now the Russian media managers would be doing a lot to try to diminish the importance of what has happened. And there will be many people who might not even believe that this was a real mutiny, a real challenge to the authority, but many will believe that. And we see in terms of the laughter that's emerging, in terms of the ridiculing patterns and the anecdotes that emerge in the Russian social media, we see that people are reacting. And, you know, the very common reaction was that, oh, the emperor is naked. So from that perspective, the leader who has been very successful in managing conflicts and being an arbiter among different interest groups, all of a sudden didn't manage well this time. And that does demonstrate weakness on his part. And it cannot not hurt. No wonder that they will try to patch it up. What do we know of how ordinary Russians view all this? What do they make of what's happening? The very early reactions were focused on various types of conspiracies. Many people had hard time believing that Putin could be challenged in such an open way. So it was a reality that was hard to confront. So various types of conspiracy theories that this was conspired by Putin himself to somehow increase or improve his hold on power were very prominent and popular, and I think they will remain. But at the same time, the other side of the story is the, I mentioned, ridicule and laughter and the social media creativity that goes on with regards to uh, bringing out various types of uh, clips from films and movies that would make fun of the situation. So it's between laughter and disbelief. And there is, of course, a wide range between that. Hmm. So do we have any insight into what President Putin is thinking, what his next move may be? Uh, You know, people are expecting repressions. You know, some of the revengeful acts might take some time, uh, uh, but this is something that we will be looking out for. And it is hard to say what exactly, uh, you know, will be decided at the moment. I think there is some lag in terms of digestion uh, that will happen and soul searching within the government, within the security services and sort of looking around and then uh, taking some action. So we are all on the watch out for those. Yeah. Has he signaled in any way that this mutiny might cause him to rethink his war in Ukraine? No, that we haven't seen. What we have seen is the attempt to patch up this open sort of challenge that was revealed uh, and to patch it up with rhetoric of 
popular unification behind the president, uh, the army saving, you know, the government and the country. And uh, yet again, the message of the West, the evil West that's trying to fragment Russia, that is out there looking for Russia's weaknesses. So all those messages uh, to a certain extent have been there and they are being used again. But at this time, you know, we see this as a band-aid that's being put on the events. One question to leave you with, and it's this. I saw one former U.S. diplomat, Elizabeth Shackelford, uh, quoted on recent events, and she said her central question now is, is Putin's biggest battle not with the West, but with his own people now? What do you think? I would say that Putin's biggest battle is on the front lines in Ukraine and the outcomes of that battle and the perceived loss uh, or success on, in that battle will determine his relationships with both the people and the elites in Russia. Gulnaz Sharafudinova, professor of Russian politics at King's College in London and author of the book The Red Mirror, Putin's Leadership and Russia's Insecure Identity. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. Democrats are working to strengthen their base in 2024, and one of the states they're targeting is North Carolina. Trump won the state in 2020 by less than 75,000 votes. For Democrats to win there, they need to maintain support with young voters. But many members of Generation Z who are newly eligible to cast ballots next year have mixed feelings about the party and President Biden. NPR's Elena Moore reports. It's hot and sunny at North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro as new student orientation is in full swing. A&T is the largest historically black university in the country, and many of those students are gearing up to vote for the first time next year. I think it would be a, a nice refresh for us to get someone even in their 50s, you know, like even that will be good. That's Solomon Hayes Brown, a sophomore from Charlotte who's working orientation. He says he'll still vote Democrat next year, but he says young folks are turned off by the older frontrunners. Biden is 80 and Trump, he's like 77, something like that. So they're, they're going up there. So if, if we saw a younger candidate, I think that would be beneficial. A&T is no stranger to political drama. The campus was split into two separate congressional districts, giving Republicans a distinct advantage in this part of the state. Courts ruled that unconstitutional, and now the campus sits in one district, filled with young voters and black voters, two groups that Democrats count on to show up to the polls. That's why the president and first lady visited the school last year. Rising senior and Greensboro native Charity Ewing remembers that. And it was just really nice to be able to see what their future plans are. So I would love to see him carry that out. Ewing isn't excited about a Trump-Biden rematch. And she's not alone. According to NPR's latest polling, Biden's approval with voters under 30 is just 38 percent. That's lower than any other age group. Elena Moore, NPR News, Greensboro, North Carolina.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A calm and partly cloudy night overnight tonight, falling to about 65 degrees. Tomorrow, plenty of sunshine to end the work week. Breezy and comfortable up around 80 degrees. Should hold at 80 over the weekend. Saturday is the better outdoor day with sunny skies and the chance of showers, slight chance in the afternoon. Sunday, some afternoon showers likely, mostly cloudy skies, strong winds around. Over at Fenway Park right now, the Red Sox and Miami Marlins are off to an early start. The game started at 7:10. In the sixth inning right now, there is no score. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 6:30, and Marketplace is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU College of Fine Arts. Earn your graduate degree at a tight-knit arts community in a vibrant university. BU.edu/cfa/grad. <laughs> 